What happened to Skype? I don't know. Hello? Hey, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good, except for that new Skype music. <laughs> the Skype song, the calling. <laughs> have, yeah. Have, have you heard it? I have heard it. It's very different. And it's uh, very interesting. I am so upset. <laughs> well, you updated. I'm guessing you updated to the new the new version. Yeah, not not by choice. It just mm. you know. Yeah, any, right. It's, it forces you anymore. They don't want. They don't want to uh, give you freedom of choice. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I updated it, and now instead of my ding 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 ding, it goes. And it's like, <laughs> fuck you. That's not how I want to start a single phone call that I make with anyone I know. Yeah. I'm always going to comment on it. There's you know, no like, there's no hope for it either. It's not going away. It'll never go back. So No, and and, and whoever they are, I mean, I, I did this update and it obviously in the interim Microsoft decided that either they bought Skype or they decided they really wanted to heavily brand Skype <laughs> as a Microsoft product. <laughs> Because, I mean, all that was missing was Clippy showing up and saying, looks like you want to make a phone call. (laughs) Like all Microsoft colors and Microsoft looking everythings. And I got lost yesterday trying to figure out my settings. Mm. I couldn't. I went into full screen mode and couldn't get out. Oh, yeah. You don't want that. You don't want full screen mode. What did I do? What did I do? (laughs) And I was, I went to to Safari and it was like, oh, well, all you have to do to get out of full screen mode is. And a list of six instructions. I'm like, why is that? A, why is that so hard? Oh, Dan. Mm. Skype. I'm sorry. Skype is now part of the. It was always part of the problem, but it's no longer even part of the solution. Well, I don't know uh, that aside. I don't know if you have been following on Twitter or in, in the emails that we've been getting, but there were a lot of people who. Uh, both in, were encouraging you to do more of the the tours of the different ships that are out there, and a handful of people saying both of us must go to visit Trinity. And one guy oh, yeah. even um, he even posted the pictures that he took at Trinity, and I put those into the show notes uh, for people who are curious uh, what goes on there. That looks pretty nice. pretty cool. I would like to go and visit that. That's high on my list of things to do maybe we'll have a little meetup at trinity one day yeah the next time i'm down in the desert southwest that is uh that's definitely i didn't i didn't realize that it was a thing that you could just that you could just go to but then again i didn't realize you could just go on a nuclear submarine at any point yeah. i'm in contact now with another captain a second sub captain unrelated to the to the first event one of our listeners is like oh my cousin's like the captain of the of one of the other boats out there, uh, but a different, a different Ohio class ship. This one does not have ballistic missiles. This one has Tomahawk, uh, intermediate range cruise missiles. They've outfitted a few of their submarines with different missileages. And so now I know another sub captain. So maybe I'll get together out there with lunch for lunch with him out, out in uh, Paul's bow. And we'll get some little German baking things little strudels or whatever they eat mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Paul's Seattle, Washington has uh, several little towns. I'm sure this is true of everywhere. I know for a fact this is true in Texas because I've been through one of them out by where LBJ had his ranch. 
But Washington has several little towns that are constructed around the theme either of being a Bavarian village <laughs> or a Norwegian village or a Norwegian Bavarian village. It's it's pretty common here to uh, to have a little like a little Potemkin village, literally full of Potemkins. Is it like a a staged village, or are there people actually living there in that manner? No, not a uh, not a stage. It is it is um, it's a choice that they made a long time ago. Like, how are we going to make our village stand out from all the other villages? And in most cases, the the uh, the settlers were all from Germany or, or Norwegia, and, and they have uh, just not modernized it. Like they've got horse buggies and stuff going around. No, no, no. They, they architecturally, it's they 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 made it very. Um, Yod lehi hu. That's the scientific nomenclature for it. I think. Yeah, they yodel lehi hu'd it, and <laughs> they um, <laughs> and it's very cute. But they still have, they still are normal towns. But they do do things like there's one here called Leavenworth, and they have uh, enforced their Bavariana on the McDonald's. So the McDonald's looks like a little Swiss chalet. Mm. So, you know, they, they pull that kind of thing. But Paulsbo, which is the big town or the or rather the town, not big at all, but the town, little little fishing village that's closest to the submarine base. They have a kind of cutesy pie Norwegian main street. It's very adorable. And that's actually a working that that's a working fishing town. I mean, people do work there. Mm-hmm. Ballard, Washington, used to traditionally be very. Scandinavian, less so all the time now that the now that the port has been converted into a into a restaurant row for people in skinny jeans. Oh. <laughs> but there's one in there's one outside of Austin. If you head west from Austin, uh-huh. uh, somewhere you know, fifty miles out of town, there's a little there's a little Bavarian village out there too. Is there? Yeah. Yeah, it's LBJ country there in the in the um, in the Roland Hills, and uh, yeah, you come come. Oh, in New Braunfels. Is it New Braunfels? I just yeah, googled maybe. it. I said uh, Bavarian Village, Austin, uh-huh. and the first result. And we know Google's always right. Always right. First result always right. Uh, is uh, it says Bavarian Village in New Braunfels. New Braunfels. There it is. Does that look right? And then, um, and then there's another one that says it talks about Fredericksburg, which they call a German town. But I oh, don't. Oh no, it is. I'm sorry, it's Frederick. It's Fredericksburg. Okay, that's that's what it is. All right, that's what it is. Fredericksburg. Uh, New Braunfels didn't didn't sound right. That sounds like maybe it's a store. Lyndon Johnson called it a special corner of God's real estate. Fredericksburg. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Put it put it in the show notes. I need to go. I guess I need to go. It's not that far out of town. And Lyndon Johnson called it a special corner of God's real estate. I mean, Come on. that's something. That's a something. I'm going to map it. I'm going to map it. I'll tell you. Maybe I'll go today. I'll go right after the show. All right. All right. I mean, how far out of town is it? It's. Well, I'm, lo- I'm looking that up right now because I've never. It's an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, I've been through it a dozen times because that's the route into Austin from the west. So you go through it. And you oh, go, yeah, definitely oh, yeah. would. Yeah. And then it's uh, that is an area of Texas that's full of tiny deer. Like, really? Completely full of tiny deer, like 
so many tiny deer. It's almost, it's like one of those, um, a horror movie staple, right? Where it's like, oh, look at the cute deer. Oh, look, there's another one. Oh, look, there's a whole bunch. Oh, oh, geez, there are a lot of them. Oh, no. And then all these little, like, like dead-eyed <laughs> just staring just, and staring at you. Yeah, and starting to creep out of the forest at you, and you realize suddenly there's a million carnivorous deer that are about to rip you to shreds. Well, it looks like there's also a Czech village. Okay. Uh, Where, how far away is the Czech village? LaGrange, Texas, which I think is <laughs> further. Oh, net, 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 yeah, I know. We get the best. We get the best names. LaGrange, Texas is... Oh, no, it's a little closer. It's an hour and 15 minutes, but it's the other way, east. Time to put the kids in the car, and every weekend now, go check out one of the, the uh, fake European villages that surround Austin. Yeah, who knew? that One is home to the uh, – Fredericksburg is home to the Nimitz Museum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, uh, whatever, whatever you want to make of that. Presumably a museum <laughs> dedicated to the Admiral and not to the ship. Yeah, It'd be probably. weird to have a ship there, but maybe the Admiral is, maybe he grew up there. And it says it also has the National Museum of the Pacific War. Again, seems like a weird location, <laughs> but it might be, uh, it might have something to do with the fact that Chester, Chester Nimitz is from there. Let's, uh, let's. Let's find out what, what it says about Chester Nimitz. I, I'm not usually the one that Googles things during our show. No, it's very un- it, unlike you to do. Let me do it today. Chester Nimitz, uh, he was, mm-hmm, he, yes, he was, that's right. He was one of the, if not the last five-star admirals. We don't have that a current. Is, don't we always have to have at least a couple five star admirals? No, no. A five star admiral is that is reserved for wartime only. There are no no admirals or generals in the in the uh, armed forces now with more than four stars. Okay, so if it became wartime, would one of them get promoted up to be a five star general or five star <laughs> admiral? Then, well, we and have who would been, promote them if there's no one to do it? The president? Yeah, the president. So he has oh, yeah. to do that. But we are, we are, I guess, currently in war. There are wars. We've been in wars for a long time. No, he would have to be like, the, the war would have to be a big enough war where you would need a commander of like a whole theater of the war, right? Like he, Nimitz can, was commander of the, the fleet. And uh, we don't have anybody that, I mean, like I'm talking about like he was the naval commander of the Navy. Uh, for in the Pacific, he was the commander of the Pacific theater. Uh, and we don't, I mean, uh, there is a, there is a commander of the Pacific fleet now, but I don't think he needs to be, he doesn't have, he doesn't have five stars. There's a, there is a, there's a reason normally you don't have five stars. I think they, they kind of had to, had to dream up a five star general and admiral during world war two, just cause they needed someone in that position. Um, MacArthur had five stars. Eisenhower had five stars. What was Patton? What was George S. Patton? He never had more than two stars. I don't think. Maybe he. Maybe he got a third star. I don't. I'm not sure. He was. He spent a lot of time as a one and two star. He ran the Third Army, right? Yeah, but the Third Army is. I mean, it's not even the. It's not even the first or second army. There's also four, five, six. I still think he should add more. 
Not really. <laughs> That's not really how it works. But, I think he had three. I'm looking but, at a uh, picture of him. He has three stars on his uh, little hat. Okay. All right. All right. If he got up to on his hat, if he got up to three, what do you call good, it? Good for him. Well, I don't think I would have called it a little hat. Are you referring to a helmet or to a little uh, to a? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, to the it's the his campaign hat. His, no, it starts. Um, I have to send the picture of this to you. It starts at way way above his ears, way above his forehead, and it you know it looks like an army hat, but it's it, uh-huh. it's small. Okay, it's, small army hat. All right, All right. I've sent you a picture of it in your messages. So tell me if you see that. It says delivered, so you should see it. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's a little hat. Okay, it sure is. That is a little hat, and he does have three stars. That's got to be right toward the end. They didn't. They didn't like him. The brass didn't like him. No, I they know that. Wanna, they didn't want to promote him. I guess he got three stars. Oh, Jason Finn just sent me a picture. I know you wanted a picture of Jason's watches. I well, yeah, that's not all I wanted, but yeah, among other things. So he sent me a picture of his watches. Now I'm going to send it to you. I'm glad that everybody is listening in to the program and they can hear all the mm-hmm. administrative stuff we're doing here. Uh, I just want, like I'm Chester, going to send you a picture of what I would call it and not little hat just for comparison. Okay. That's coming your Chester way. Chester Dimitz was born uh, in Fredericksburg, Texas. And so uh, that accounts for the Admiral Nimitz State Historic Site, which is in the it's located in his grandfather's old hotel. And <clears throat> now it makes sense, right? Nimitz, German name. He's a, um, he's a German Texan. And it turns out that there is a whole group of Texans from Germany, which uh, uh, enough of them that it, it uh, th- that they, have created an entire ethnic category. So in the state of Texas today, there are descendants of the German Texans <laughs> uh, who started arriving in 1830 and uh, they clustered together in little German towns uh, in a sort of fragmented belt across the south central part of the state. So there it is. About As of 1993, million Texans considered themselves at least part ethnic German. What about well, that? Go. Well, I love that you're just having lunch with Jason Finn. And by the way, Jason Finn, for those who don't know this, when you sent me the picture and you said his name and you said, Jason Finn says, hi, it took, it took me a minute. And I'm like, I know, I know this person's name and I'm sitting here thinking, I, I obviously he's a musician of some kind. And then it then it clicked. It it well, it, in my mind, I felt like he was a musician. Okay, all right. And then I, I checked him out, uh, and of course, then it, it hit me. Of course, I now I know why because he's the drummer. I guess technically, former drummer for the presidency uh, of the United States of America. He's a pre- current drummer, but formerly of the presidency of the United States of America, right? Because they're not together still. I'm not a hundred percent sure what the public. Uh, facing story is about what what the current status of the presidents of the USA uh, is internally, but I I don't think that the presidents broke up, and therefore Jason would can be considered still the drummer of the presidents. Now the presidents aren't currently booking any shows, right, or doing albums, that, right? But I don't think that means 
you know, I think for a band to break up, in my opinion, there's no reason for a band to break up unless that, unless someone in the band wants to be dramatic about it because there's nothing keeping a band from saying, we're not going to tour for a while. Right. Uh, We're not going to make any records for a little bit. We're going to take a little break. And that can extend forever. <clears throat> what it does is it doesn't, uh, you know, um, what breaking up allows you to do if you're cynical is you can go out and do a farewell tour. A lot of bands just break up because they're mad at each other. Right. And they throw their guitars down and stomp off the stage and then <laughs> announce the next day, we're broken up. Right. Um, and I just find that ridiculous. And a lot of times then that band has to get back together. Which sure. I also feel is ridiculous. You can just stop doing the thing and go do some other things. And, you know, no one's going to cry. You're going to get a lot of emails like, when are you putting out another record? But, of course, you're going to get that anyway. I got, I got a, some some uh, kid on Instagram yesterday sent me a DM that said, hey, I love your music. And I wrote back and said, thanks. And then this morning I woke up to, are you going to make any more records or anything? just like ugh. you, you should you write would, back and say you know i hadn't thought of that <laughs> and maybe i should you know what you're right i'm gonna go make one right now hang on i'm making know, making a record can't talk you know what kid i wasn't planning on it <laughs> but now I'm, I'm thinking about it you planted a seed tell you what i'll tell you first Anyway, so uh, I don't think there's anything broken up about the presidents. There's well, certainly nothing broken up about the long winters. The long winters are still a uh, an active and viable musical definitely operation. Although we haven't released an album in ten years. Well, I, uh, I like. I mean, I like that. That's that's good news because my son and I love love uh, their music as well as your music. But we love yeah. we love theirs. And uh, I found out in my research of Jason Finn. That his birthday, not year, but birthday is only one day different from mine. So we're almost the same person. Because mm. if you're uh, born on the same day as someone, you're basically the same person as that person is. Uh, but he, but not in the same year. No, he's a few years older. Um, you guys have, uh, you guys share some ethnic background as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So there's a lot. You have a lot in common. And he loves watches. I'm look. I am looking at a photograph now of six beautiful watches that are owned uh, by Jason Finn. I'm now looking. I'm. I'm now what one two degrees away from uh, President's United States of America. Now through you, another uh, yet another say. connection you've made for me. He's texting me currently, and he wants me to tell you that he makes very good barbecued ribs in his oh. big green egg barbecue egg. Yes. And I am already super bored uh, with this conversation that's happening between the two of you about watches and barbecue. Yeah. So I'm going to put you guys together, Ooh. and you can just chit, chit, chat. Yeah, about give, send, send them my, my digits. Yeah, and I'm just going to do like a little bit of a moonwalk out of the room, just like. <laughs> um, well, very good. Well, so, thank you for that. Yeah. So, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll be fast friends. Jason makes it down to Texas. He loves it down there. Uh, he gets down to the desert all the time. So maybe a year from now, you know, I put a couple of friends together, Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. 
mm. in the same way, like, oh, you guys are both nerds and I don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. Why don't you talk about it with each other? And now they're super tight bros. They've got yeah, maximum fun guys, right? Yeah. They got a podcast together about Star Trek. Yeah. The whole thing. Who knows so what will happen from here? Yeah. Maybe you and Jason Finn will start a podcast and, and about watches. That's, that's right. About watches and barbecue. Well, thank you. Yeah, you bet. I, you know, I'm a real yenta when it comes to you. Really are uh, nerdy dudes. You're like more than my grandmother, even. <laughs> Why aren't you married yet? Oh, yeah. you are. Yeah. Our first sponsor is RX Bar. RX Bar. I loved. I just ate one of these things. These are whole food protein bars. What does that mean? I'll tell you. These bars are made with 100% whole ingredients, and they say what they are right on the front. They're not hiding anything. They want to be completely transparent. And these core ingredients, egg whites, dates, and nuts, right there on the front of the package, that creates the texture, that creates the taste, 100% real ingredients. Uh, There's no added sugar. There's no fillers. There's no additives. Absolutely no chemicals. And this is it. And what happened is they started this thing back in 2013, calling BS on protein bars. They couldn't find a single bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients or just garbage or just loaded up with tons and tons of sugar. So that's what they do. They take three egg whites, two dates, six almonds, and then they add some other kind of natural deliciousness to it. Could be fruit, could be some chocolate, could be some peanut butter. They have 11 delicious varieties, all of them soy-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, no added sugar, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, no preservatives, no fillers. You get the idea? These things are awesome and they taste amazing and they're super filling. I usually eat one after I go to a workout because it's something good to do. Your body has just exerted itself. Now you have this. I know a lot of people that eat these things for breakfast. Another great time is that three or four o'clock time period at the end of the day where you know it's still two, three hours away from dinner, but you're kind of hungry and you don't want junk food. You want something that's going to have a good balance of protein, a bit of carbs in it, but it's going to be good for you. Boom. RX bar. I am serious about these things. They are great. They could not pay me to say that they're great. They can pay me to tell you that there are 11 flavors. They can't pay me to tell you that they're great, and they are great. You're going to get 25% off your first order at rxbar.com slash roadwork and use the promo code roadwork when you check out and you'll get 25% off. Thank you very much to RxBar. Remember that promo code roadwork and you'll get 25% off. And by the way, they've got like a a variety pack. Get that and you'll be able to taste all of them and figure out what your favorite is. Have fun with this. They're really good. RX Bar. Uh, what else is on your uh, radar, Dan? Uh, well, I wanted to mention that uh, for people who have gotten excited about us talking about the Trinity thing, it's not like you can just go there and and show up and get a tour. Maybe John can show up and get a tour. The rest of us can't show up and get a tour. You well, have well. to sign up for it and pay money, and it fills up. Well, in advance, they are currently taking registrations for the April 7, 2018 uh, tour. And when that is full, like then you've got to wait. I think they only do it twice a year. Oh, no. Yeah. You I'm I'm sure you could just show up and you'd get in with your your general or whatever. But 
I'm not sure. I don't think that they accept challenge coins at the front door. Tour participants tour the McDonald Ranch House, walk to Ground Zero, and view Jumbo, codenamed for the 214-ton thermos-shaped steel and concrete container designed to hold the precious plutonium core of the Trinity device in case of a nuclear misfire. While on the bus, docents will also provide insight into historical events and the scientific pioneers of the Manhattan Project. Oh, uh, the tour includes a sandwich lunch at the Burger Bodega in uh, Socorro and a tour of the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History upon return to the museum. That sounds cool. So, 90 bucks. I think it's Um, worth it. uh, I I think it's absolutely worth it. It's just a question of coming from Seattle, of course, now you have to factor in all of the yeah, it's not like I'm in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you gotta you gotta fly out here. So that puts a lot of weight on those docents <laughs> to to put on a hell of a show. And yeah. if it's just if that's just some like local old people who are, oh come on, everyone on the bus, and they have a little spiel that they give, I'm gonna be pretty bummed about flying down there and staying in a hotel for a week. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so you know, I, I'd like to hear that it's a good time. Uh, and I definitely want to, I, I want the awe of standing there at the site. Part of the problem of a docent often is that they think that what they are saying, they think that their job is to say things the whole time. I went on a, I was up in, um, in Maine and uh, in a little town up there and they had a three masted whaler that you could get on and go out and take a tour of, you know, like a unfurl the sails and take a tour of the, the region. And there was actually a, someone from the national park service on the boat that was describing the wildlife that you saw. But this young ranger thought what that meant was that she needed to speak without interruption from the time the boat left the dock to the time that it returned to the dock. Oh man. And you know, a big part of being out on uh, a thing like that is that there's a long period where you are, uh, allowed to just stare out at the water and imagine yourself being on a whaler in 1840 and take it in, just take it in at least for me. Uh, and she had a microphone so it wasn't like you could tune her out. She had this, I mean, they had set it up so that you could hear her over the wind. And I cannot (laughs) tell you how upset I was by the time I got back to shore. It was just like, like, please, you're not, I mean, all you, all you're talking about is some birds and some critters. You could say like on our left, you'll see the, the uh, northeastern tern, a bird that eats fish, and then be silent. Um, and even if you went, even if you went five sentences deep into what the northeastern tern does, what its lifestyle is like, what it what it thinks about when it dreams, then be silent. Like you could give us all this information without just ramble, ramble, ramble. Um, and I didn't know, you know, I, I was, uh, 
sometimes it's hard for me to control my emotions, Dan, when I get a feeling like that, when I feel intruded upon. What do you do? Some, something where I've paid money. Well, the thing is that this is the way that they're running this. And it isn't the way that I would run it. But. Uh, what do you do? I mean, like, what, what do you do in, when faced with that? I think in this instance, I actually did say to some, I either said to her or I said to someone on the boat, like, could we have a period of, of quiet reflection? Um, but I was greeted with just incomprehension. You know, I've just, I was, I, I got, I did not get what I was looking for. She either said, this is the program or someone or the person I talked to said, this is the program. Um, and I think I might've even said, I wish in the description of the program on the shore, it was, it was explicit that this was going to be a, um, that this was going to be a lengthy presentation on the part of a speaker. Uh, but you know, I was saying this kind of with my, with my jaw clenched because by that point I was bummed. Right. And I'm not a, I'm not very good when I get bummed. You know, if I get bummed in a situation like that, I'm not very, mm, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not like I am an out, I, I'm not outbursty, but I'm, I can't really be, um, it's hard for me to get back up into smile town. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I get, I get out there. I realize that this is what this is. She's not going to stop talking because for the first third of the thing, I'm just like, okay, well she's going to get done with her thing and stop talking. And then when I realize, oh, that's not going to happen. She's going to talk through the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Then I flip over into this is ruined. This is ruined. Right. You can't even, you, you can't even get any enjoyment out of it now. Why are you even here? Now you've wasted money. Now you've wasted time. Yeah, I just want to be back on shore. I want this to be over and I want to write a strongly worded letter to the to the park service or to the boss or whatever. Um but then there's two thirds of the thing left to do. So then I then it's ruined and then I'm sitting there covered in like epoxy because it's not because I can't I can't it's very hard for me and I try, I try, I try to convert those bummer moments into happy times, right? Like, okay, well this, I guess this is what it is. So there's nothing I can do about it. And rather than sit here for the next two hours in a, in a bummer, I should just get, get fine with it. But you know, I, but her chainsaw, her voice is just chainsawing it, its Mm-mm. way into my head Mm-mm. and I can't silence it. And there's nowhere I can go on the boat cause there are speakers hooked up everywhere. I cannot, I'm just like, I'm, you can't I'm get just, any peace. You can't I'm get trapped. any, you, the whole point of you being out there is to enjoy the nature and they should have a sense of that. They should have a sense yeah, that but, we're going to, we're just going to give him a break now, but they don't, they don't care. They're not paying attention to me. There are 50 people on the boat and, and, and obviously they have either. This is one of those things where you say, Hey, this isn't what people want. And then their retort is, well, we never get anything but positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And you go, yeah, I know, but I mean, I can just, just speaking from experience, no one wants this. 
if you uh, uh, if you have any experience at all of people, mm-hmm. everybody wants a little bit of quiet, don't they? Even the craziest people want a little bit of quiet. <laughs> well, we only get you know, we've never had any complaints. And when you're when you're greeted with, we've never had any complaints. It's like you got you got. There's nowhere to go with it, you know. You're you're criticizing a thing that they feel like they've worked really hard on, and so you're never going to arrive at a. If your argument is, I mean, my argument is always: if you went on a thing where it, where it said, you know, like ocean cruise, and then you got out there and there was someone on a loud microphone just talking the entire time mm, it's no longer it's that's nothing no one wants that would you want that and, no. and their answer is always going to be like yes absolutely i mean you know there there's a disconnect between the the show that they're trying to put on and what and ever imagining themselves as a member of the audience and i think you see that a lot where uh where the show the the person is not a show person they are a, in this case, park ranger, and so they don't have a, they don't have a developed sense of, of what a good show is, and that a show needs pauses, and that a show <clears throat> is trying to fulfill a need in the audience. It isn't just for its own sake. And I mean, there's a lot of those, right? There's a lot of. Uh, I get asked to do events like that all the time where people who aren't in show business are putting on a show and you know, sometimes they make the mistake of thinking that what the audience wants is an exhaustive amount of information. But the problem with this cruise was that the, she was talking constantly, but it wasn't exhaustive. Like she was not imparting deep, deep, deep knowledge. She was just, she just was. She just couldn't bear the silence once she started making noise. Our next sponsor is Brooklinen. I have just discovered this. Well, I mean, not just. I've had this for a couple months now. Uh, but this changes your whole game when it comes to sleeping and getting good quality sleep and being more comfortable in your bed. And this is in just in time for the holiday gifting season too. Brooklinen. Let me tell you the URL. Brooklinen.com. B-R-O-O-K. Linen, L-I-N-E-N dot com, brooklinen.com. Buying sheets, really good sheets, is an easy way to upgrade your whole nightly routine. The right sheets are going to make or break a good night's sleep. This is factual. And you're going to feel, you get a better night's sleep, you're going to feel better, you're going to feel more rested, you're going to be more creative, you're going to be more productive, you're going to feel better about your whole life. But here's the problem. Most high-end bedding is marked up by like 300% by the time it reaches the store. Brooklinen makes quality luxury sheets and bedding accessible to everyone. And this is a great gift idea too. I'm telling you, you show up. It's not like when you're a kid, you're a little kid and your your grandparents like, we got you a sweater. And you're like, great. That's the last thing I've ever wanted was a sweater. Listen, I'm telling you, give these things to your uh, your friends, your family, and I'm like, oh, you got us some sheets, great. And you're like, no, 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 no. Try these, and they will try them, and they will come back to you, and all of a sudden, your whole family who has hated you your whole life, they're now going to love you. 
you're now going to be the number one son, the number one daughter. The child that your parents had always wished for, you will become that by giving them the Brooklyn and Sheets. I'm not kidding. So here's the thing. Try these. You're going to like them. Brooklinen.com. They have a special offer just for listeners of this amazing program. $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. In fact, they're so confident that you're going to love these. They offer you a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of the sheets and comforters. There's no reason to not try them because there's no risk to it. 60 nights to try it. It's a wonderful gift of luxury sheets. I'm telling you, the only way to get 20 bucks off and free shipping is use the code ROADWORK at brooklinen.com. Go check them out. I hope to God that she isn't just randomly a listener to this program or that her boss isn't because I don't want to get her in trouble. They kind of, was, but I, I feel like they kind of need ago. to hear it. They kind of need to hear it. This was years ago though. She's, she's moved on. She's probably, she's probably in a firewatch tower in uh, Wyoming and she, and no one is around because her superiors or her uh, coworkers all said, you know what would be great is if we didn't have to listen to her talk anymore. So they put her in a firewatch tower. I don't even know if they still use firewatch towers. I don't think they do. Can you imagine a time when that was a job all summer long? You just sat up in a tower with binoculars and looked out and your the your job was just to look for smoke. I mean, those were the good old days. How high up would you have to be like a, like one of those really tall firewatch tower type things? Mhm. Yeah, you'd they they had those out there. You'd go station yourself in it and just sit and I bring, guess bring work like on a your thermos, memoirs. bring a thermos. What if you have to go to the restroom or something? Well, you live there. It's not like you oh, go you out live in the morning, like a in a lighthouse or something. Yeah, you live in the lighthouse. The I lighthouse. thought you just went like you were be, go up there during the day and then you just go back down at night and you're that's your shift or something. I think the those firewatch towers, in my experience, are very remote. And so not, not easy to come and go. But in fact, you go out there and stay for a couple of weeks, maybe. Huh. I mean, look, I've never, I've never done it. I've never been part of a, a Firewatch team. In fact, that's kind of a regret. I, uh, I have a lot of friends that were fire, like wildland firefighters. Yeah. Because coming from Alaska, that was one of the things that you did. You would go, you could either go fishing or you could go firefighting or you could go whitewater river raft guiding. Those were like jobs that you could get when you were young. Right. And I got, <clears throat> I did not get a single one of those jobs. And my, you know, my friends, uh, my friends would come down covered with soot from some big fire. Oh, the other thing you could do was go work for the oil companies. Um, I had a friend named uh, Jennifer who decided she was a, a wildland firefighter and became kind of a big deal in the firefighters over time. You know, she became like a jump master and uh, like a, like widely regarded as a as a real pro in the firefighting community and she had all these she would come back there'd be like 
she would smell like forest fire. That's a pretty cool smell. Smell like forest fire. What was she, I mean, was she fighting the fires every day? There's that many fires going on? In the fire season. It sounds like you know, LA. The, the thing about Alaska is that you can have millions of acres of of land on fire and no one in the world, no one in the lower 48 would be even aware of it because it's not threatening towns. Yeah. So in those seasons where the Western United States is on fire, you got big fires. It used to be that you had big fires in the summer, but those fires were in Montana and Eastern Washington and Wyoming, you know, um, there's that Richard Dreyfus Holly Hunter movie where he's a he's a pilot. She's a pilot. They're like fire firefighter pilots. And then I think it's I think it's like the movie Ghost. He dies or something and creeps around. Holly Hunter and uh, and who Dreyfus? Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, it's actually a charming movie, but it's about firefighters and it's firefighting in in uh, in Montana. When I was growing up, Alaska and Montana were places where firefighters were. And these California fires, although they had California fires, surely, but they just seemed like, I don't know, not that big of a deal. Small potatoes or they were happening out in the brush and sometimes they would creep down and and, uh, burn a little neighborhood or something. But it wasn't like now where during fire season, it's like the whole state of California is engulfed. And you don't even hear about fires in the north. Although this summer, we uh, uh, British Columbia had enormous fires. The fires were so bad that they uh, that the Seattle was choked in smoke. But Alaska has always had tremendous fires that just engulfed um, huge regions, and you wouldn't even it wouldn't even make the newspapers. So there's always been a there's always been a firefighting community, and then those Alaska firefighters also. Once I think you're a a um, a like a fighting brush fire or forest fires, I think you fly all around wherever you're needed. So you do a little time here, and then a fire breaks out over there, and you fly to this state and do some work there, and then you know like you're you're busy all all year. Pete Sandich is an aerial firefighter flying a war surplus A-26 bomber dropping fire retardant slurry to put out forest wildfires. His excessive risk-taking is in, in the air deeply troubles his girlfriend, Dorina Durston, a pilot who doubles as a dispatcher and is also a concern to his best friend, Al Yaki, played by John Goodman, a fellow fighter. Mm-hmm. On one flight, Pete makes one extra drop, runs out of fuel, and barely manages to glide onto the runway. I'm in. I'm all in. It's great. I say this it's is great. a it's top top movie. 1989 movie named Always. Always, yeah. It's a it's from that era of of uh, cute <laughs> movies back when Richard Dreyfuss could still be uh, reasonably considered a romantic lead. And the the uh, I don't know if you've seen the poster for this. Uh, and by the way, it's directed by Steven Spielberg. But the poster of this. Uh, I'm going to send you this because I think, I think this is important and I think we need to talk about it. Uh, but Richard Dreyfuss's photo on the poster of this is he's sort of glowing and illuminated 
in a in a ghostly, almost heavenly light. Can you uh-huh. see that? Do you see that? Yeah, that's it's very Spielbergian, isn't yes. it? <laughs> almost like cocoon or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> but yeah. So you think I, like is this a movie I should go and, and watch? Are you saying that or Well, you know, that there is something to be said for um I don't know if I'm gonna call that the golden uh, like a second golden age of filmmaking. The but, late eighties. <laughs> but there <laughs> that was an era where there were a lot of romantic comedies that were also poignant. You could have poignancy in a comedy and it and it was still funny. And and in some ways it I guess it was a like it's fairly tonally complicated to have a a funny adventure or a funny like like romancing the stone is an adventure movie, mm-hmm. but it's also kind of comic booky. Very, yeah. In, great movie this, though. It's a great movie, and it's in the style of Indiana Jones. Uh, and I think Indiana Jones probably affected a whole generation of of movies like that that were like, this is an adventure. People do die in this movie, but it's also fun. And when when uh, when the plane takes off, the music starts with some trumpets and and um, <laughs> and always it's like a comedy, but it. But it's also very dramatic, and it's a tearjerker, and it's uh, and it's very romantic. I don't know why I pronounced it that way. It's very romantic. <laughs> I I think I think that there, uh, but you know, it's not like Dick Tracy. It's not actually a comic book. It's a it's like somebody came up with a story. This is the the this is like screenwriters screenwriters where they're where they're thinking. Let me do a movie about firefighters. Wildland firefighters, like a pilot, a rakish pilot played by a person you wouldn't describe as rakish, like Richard Dreyfus. I mean, and it, and it felt very much, this was like Holly Hunter's, these were Holly Hunter's like big years. It felt a little bit like a vehicle for Holly Hunter to kind of showcase her, although really it's a Richard Dreyfus movie. But Nowadays, it feels like a romantic comedy is is going to spend a lot of time. It's just going to be full of fart jokes. There just aren't that many sophisticated ones. Although maybe I'm not the the target audience for them, but yeah, I think I think what they think of as a romantic comedy today is very different from what we might have thought of in the '80s. I'm not sure what that is today, but. You know, I mean, what movies jumped to mind? There was that whole genre of, like you're saying, like romantic comedies were a big, it was a bit like You've Got Mail was a big one. And, you know, I mean, like, like, and the people that were in the romantic comedies at that time, like you had like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, who were both in their, or playing characters that I think were supposed to be in their mid to late thirties. Yeah. And like romantic comedies weren't, 18 year olds so much back then as they were like full grown adults and they all had Meg Ryan in them. Oh, Meg Ryan. Yeah. She was so cute. She was America's sweetheart. She was, uh, who's America's sweetheart now. That's my question. 
besides uh, besides us? Yeah. Well, you're definitely uh, America's podcasting sweetheart. Uh-huh. But but yeah, right. Uh, what was the who was the gal in the movie Speed? Oh, Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock was America's sweetheart for a while. Um, we haven't had a a real st- sweetheart. Maybe Emma Thompson. Did I even? Is that even a person? I'm just throwing names at a dartboard now. Uh, you, uh Emma Thompson. No, who was the who was the girl that was in the movie recently with the Emma guy? Emma Thompson they, is uh, born in British. 1959 and British. Oh, uh, no. How about uh, who's the who's the one that was in the movie where they, it was like a musical, old fashioned musical? They were dancing on the top of cars and stuff, and everybody was mad because they were two white people. This uh, is a recent a recent movie, yeah. With um, yeah. I I think that Gosling is the guy's name in that. Gos Gosling is the guy. I don't. And, I'm uh, trying to uh, remember the woman in that. Woman is um, La La Land, right? That's La-La the name of the movie. Land. Who's yeah, the La-La Who's the lead Land. in that? Uh, Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Is she America's sweetheart? I mean, I I would I would vote for her in that because i think she's a great actress mm. uh she was in that a aw- couple awful spider-man movies yeah i don't know i, I i'm not I, i'm not qualified to go all the way not to jennifer like jennifer lawrence ass. jennifer lawrence i'm gonna put that name forward oh yeah okay okay but she's but yeah but she's she's like she's an adventure actor actor and also she does like I, n- I never saw Meg Ryan in a movie where I was like, that was good acting. But I do feel like Jennifer Lawrence I've seen in more than one movie where I was like, whoa, she is a powerful uh, performer. What about Margot Robbie? Too old? I don't even know who that is. She was, she's a great actress. She was in, uh, and she's, I mean, she's only 27, so I don't know what your requirements are. No, I think you can be 27 and be good at things. Marco Robbie. She was in Wolf of Wall Street. She was uh, Harley Quinn in the new in the awful um, movie with Harley Quinn in it. Hmm. I don't think those two things are enough to make me go all the way to understanding. But she might. She might be not American now. Yeah, she's from Australia. Can you, can an Australian be America's sweetheart? sweetheart? If not, she's out. Well, now this is confusing to me because it says here that she played herself in the big short. And the big short is talk is a movie about the financial crash of 2007. She was born in 1990. No, she, I saw this movie that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. She is in a very interesting role in this movie she is herself in the movie but she is almost a narrator who they oh, use to explain oh right some of the foundational uh concepts in, in the in the movie right it was the weird conceit of the big short where right. every once in a while it cut to some actor who was like let me explain what uh what the industrial average is or whatever what about l fanning is she related to an act? Does she have a um, like a famous parent? Yeah, like- Dakota Fanning is her older sister, right. who's an a- actress also. 
and isn't Dakota Fanning like uh, Meg Ryan's daughter or something? I'm sure they're all Meg Ryan's daughter. Let me see here. Gal Gal she's Gadot have- is Wonder Woman, but she's Israeli, so she can't be America's anything. Well, I don't know if you can if you were willing to consider that an Australian could be America's sweetheart. Well, I, I don't know see why re- you wouldn't consider I rejected, an Israeli. I rejected her. Yeah, I suppose. I was going to say Lily James, who's awesome. Uh, she was in Baby Driver most recently, and uh, and also in the Cinderella movie that my daughter loves, and in Downton Abbey. But again, guess what? She's from London or England or whatever they have over there, so she's out. Well, no, I would like to revisit this. I'd like to revisit this idea because I feel, I feel like America is a melting pot. America uh-huh. is, is a place where people can come and, and become Americans. Um, I don't see why someone from Australia or Israel or, uh, or China or wherever couldn't come and become America's sweetheart. It just means that we're sweet on them. Okay. All right. Right. It doesn't mean they don't have to be like born in Iowa and, and raised on corn, like a, like a milk cow. But what about can, Emma, Emma Watson then? Yeah, they can come sweep us off our feet. With Hermione, their, Hermione came in and, uh, and did that, I think, for a generation of people. Now she's all grown up. Hermione did. Mm-hmm. Emma Watson as Hermione. Hermione. Was Hermione a name already? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a very nice name. For a long time when I would see it, when I read those books, I was like, Hermione? Yeah, that's what I thought too. And a friend of mine, before I started, I got the I got into these books to read to my son. I guess about I don't know, maybe two, three years ago, and I'd never read them. And a friend of mine, uh, she was a, is a a super super fan of the Harry mm-hmm. Potter books, and she said, "Listen, when you start reading this, she's like, you need to know how to pronounce Hermione's name." Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I said, okay, well, it sounds like you just taught me. She's like, right. But if you ever forget, she said, it's her. Mm-hmm. And she pointed at, at some woman that was walking by and she, she said, my, and she pointed herself and she said, knee. And she pointed her knee. Hermione. Yeah. It's not Hermione. No. Really? That's what I'm, that's what I'm, the super fans told me. Hermione. Hermione. Hermione? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like Hermione. Well, I'm not making this up. This is how it's pronounced. It's her, it's the character's name. I, w- I like Hermione better than Hermione. Well. But Hermione. We're going to get a lot of email. A, Hermione is such a delightful name. Do, is, this, is Harry Potter one of those things where in the course of six movies, no one ever pronounces Hermione's name in the film? Mm. No, they is say it. it. I mean, I think you can. Like, I think you can. You, come here. I think you can drag it out the way you're saying it, Hermione. But if you mm-hmm. say it faster, like if I was saying Roderick, like I'm yeah. not going to say it like Roderick. Like it's a it's a one word, Hermione. You know, you you speed it up. Okay, what about well, Natalie Natalie Portman? Oh, Natalie Portman, I think was America's sweetheart for a long time. You're right. You're right. For a younger generation, she was never my sweetheart. No. But uh, but I do feel like there's a whole bunch of people for whom she was America's sweetheart. But like to 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 make the point that you can be from somewhere else, I think um, 
the young French woman who played Amelie. Mm-hmm. Is Amelie? Is that the yeah? That's yeah. the one I'm thinking of, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, she didn't speak a word of English in that movie, and uh, and she was America's sweetheart, at least in 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 my in my small corner of America. Yeah. Our next sponsor is Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door that can be cooked in under 45 minutes. They change the menu every week based on what's in season. It's designed by Blue Apron's in-house culinary team. They give 12 new recipes each week. And you guys can pick two, three, or four recipes based on what's going on in your schedule. They send out only non-GMO ingredients, meat with no added hormones. I'm talking about the best quality stuff. And this is the thing, is they want to make home cooking accessible for you any night of the week. And they want to make it delicious. They have professional chefs that put a lot of care into making recipes that are really interesting, really unique, but also can be made by a normal human being in a normal kitchen. And you know what? Some of the best parts of our days happen around meals. They happen over dinner. And they want you to like share that perspective. That's the thing. They want to make cooking fun. They want to make it easy. And they want you to feel like you can do it. And so they come up with great meals. What am I talking about? Here's some baked tilapia and creamy kale with fregola sarda pasta. I don't even know what that is. Yet, now all of a sudden I'm making it. Creamy tomato pasta with mushrooms and collard greens. Chili butter steaks with lemon parmesan broccoli and potatoes. You know what I'm talking about. Talking about good food. Now, they're treating you, the listeners to this amazing program, to your first dinner, a $30 value if you go to blueapron.com slash roadwork. So you can go there, you can check out this week's menu and see what there is, see what they're coming up with over there, and get $30 off with free shipping. Did I mention that? Free shipping? At blueapron.com slash roadwork. Blue Apron, it really is a better way to cook. What about a Zendaya? Who I'm told is a millennial's sweetheart. Uh, can you spell that name for me? Z-E-N-D-A-Y-A. She was MJ in the new Spider-Man movie. D-A-Y-A. Zendaya. It's a wonderful name. Mm-hmm. Zendaya. She was a. She was in a Wonder Woman movie. Spider-Man. Oh, a Spider-Man movie. Uh, I, I do not recognize her. I have not seen her films, which include the Disney sitcom Shake It Up. <laughs> I have, did not see that. No. I did not see the Disney Channel original movie Frenemies. Uh, oh, and where she was a backup dancer dancer or something. Child model. Wouldn't be aware of that. Um, have not seen Dancing with the Stars. Produces and stars in the Disney Channel sitcom Casey Undercover. Have not seen it. Marvel superhero film Spider-Man colon Homecoming, which I have not seen. And in the musical drama film, The Greatest Showman, also have not seen. She's released the singles Swag It Out and Watch Me, neither of which I've heard. <laughs> right. Uh, Maybe she's below the millennials as far as age of people who like her. Maybe it's what's, well, what's coming after millennials. What's the name of that? She's 21 years old. So I do imagine that probably she, if she's coming out of a Disney uh, Disney Channel culture. Yeah, her fans are probably fifteen, right? 
And I don't know what you would call a 15-year-old. I don't think you can still call them millennials. No, Mill- definitely Millennials not. have driver's licenses. Right, sure. So, so what are they? They're... Well, that's we we never know what to call the next generation until they start asserting themselves enough that they need a name, right? I think if a bunch of fifteen-year-olds, you just call them kids. It's only when they start clamoring at the gates that at first you come up with a derisive name for them, mm-hmm. and then they protest it and come up with a name for themselves. Like, what were we called? We had a name before Generation X. We were called something else. The Slack gen, Slack generation? Or Slacker something? generation. Slacker generation. But, I mean, but when we were kids, we were the latchkey kid generation. Oh, yeah, latchkey kids, yeah. Uh, but there were a couple of names for us before we were like, no, man, Generation X. And, and I feel like that was – that was like our last, uh, our saving throw, like last ditch attempt to not go down in history as just the losers. But you know what's weird to me? It's like, where did all the people who are like 53 right now, like where did they all come from? I feel like they're kind of, they're kind of like misfits, you know? They are. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't, they don't really fit into the scheme of where things are right now. Like you've got people who are in their mid twenties. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Go on. And you got people who are in their like mid forties, maybe late forties. Okay. Go on. But like 56 years old, who are you? Where are you from? How did you get here? That's a weird age to be right now. Well, like they're I in do- the middle. They're in between things. They don't even, they have no place in the world. They've got no foothold. This is, this is the boy, you know, breaking people up into generations and trying to think of them that way. It is really handy, but it also, it it can consume our, our, uh, like our idea of time. It's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a, um, it's a fascinating and very, uh, like, um, what is the word I'm trying to find? Um, it's a seductive way to look at time. And I fall into it all the time. I'm like, well, that was the World War II generation. And that, and this is how they were. And then attitudes changed. And then the next generation had these attitudes. And I mean, I do it all the time. And I really do think of, I think of history in those terms but it is a seduction. It's not, and 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 like all um, like all generalizations, there's a lot of truth to it. But it's also not very useful because the baby boomers are, I mean, they include everyone born from 1940 to 1960, and there's just no similarity between. Um, I mean, that's a 20 year golf. You could, you could be born in 1940 and have a kid in 1960. Yeah. So that's not a very useful, you know, a 15 year span for a generation isn't very useful. And for, for many years, generation X was when I first heard it explained, it was explained as being everyone born between 1960 and 1975. 
And then as, and I was, uh, since I'm born in 1968, like right smack dab in the middle of generation X. And I always thought of myself as like the, the tent pole of, of that demographic. But as time went on, more and more people that were born in 1979 felt more kinship with generation X people than they did with whatever generation Y. And so there was this self assignment of people from 78, 79, 80 sort of saying like, well, I'm really more gen X, but then you're in this 20 year problem where Barack Obama was born in 1960. Mm -hmm. Is Barack Obama in the same generation as someone born in 1980? I'd say no. I'd say no. Yeah. Who was 11 years old when Nirvana was big? Seems a little weird. And, and also for me, right? Like in 1991, I was a full grown person living in, living on my own in the big city and making rock music. And to think that there was that someone born in 1980 who was 11 then would be, would be in a shared generation with me. Doesn't, it just doesn't make that much sense. Although now I do feel like people that are born in 1980 are, are absolutely sort of peers, but I think that's part of being a grown up an older grown up. Right. But, but am I in the same generation as Barack Obama? And that question I always answer by using the John Flansburg principle, because I am definitely in the same generation as John Flansburg. Like he's older than I am. And he was, and they might be giants was already a band in like, punk rock New York city times mm-hmm. and that feeling of being a teenager in high school in Alaska and being aware that there was this amazing like alternative culture in New York in the late seventies that included Debbie Harry and the talking heads. It's very hard for me to say like, Oh yeah, I'm a member of that generation. I'm the, I'm in the same generation as David Byrne because clearly I'm not right. But John Flansburg and They Might Be Giants, who had a hit on the radio in 1987, they're older than me, but but we're peers. I mean, if effectively, like culturally peers, we have a lot of the same influences. He he probably saw Howdy Doody on TV, and I didn't. Uh, and John Flansburg and and uh, Barack Obama are not that far apart in age. Anyway. The splitting things up into generations is super fun. It usually is used by one generation to like try and put the other generations down. Like you missed all this cool stuff that we had. Well, that and I use baby boomer as I mean, baby boomer is right. I think right after fucker in terms of like <laughs> if I am going to call somebody a dirty word. <laughs> Right, like there's like right at the top of my list is dingaling, then there's ding dong, and then there's fucker, and then there's baby boomer. Then that's it. You just got those four. Nothing in no. Well, in no. Then it, you know. Then I'll say like, don't be shitty. Hmm. Uh, 
And then I'll, you know, there are other ones that I'll say periodically like shitbird. Don't be a shitbird. But I'm not going to yell that across the street at somebody. Shitbird. I guess I would. I guess I would. I'd yell that across the street. But, you know, don't don't get on my bad side enough that I call you a baby boomer. So it goes both directions. But like the millenniums definitely feel very defensive. You can feel that's a big part of their identity that everyone is always dumping on them. Like, oh, millenniums don't know how to read a book. Oh, millenniums, no one's ever told them no. And I mean, they gave Generation X that kind of business times a thousand. You know, what they said about us was that we were literally never going to amount to anything. I mean, they don't say that about the millenniums. They're talking about how rich millenniums are. And with with Generation X, it was just like, oh, here's a here's a bunch of losers. Here's a bunch of lost losers. Um, they won't be able to work because they don't have any work ethic. The economy is gone to shit, so there won't be any money for them. AIDS has made it so that they can't really have sex with each other anymore. It's not fun. Everybody's terrified. And so they're just going to sit around and smoke pot in their mom's basement until they get to be old. And, you know, they're all going to look like, like a newer member of Dinosaur Jr. There's, not, there's no future for them. Well, look how we turned out. We're like, we're like the podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have, to, I have to constantly remind myself not to think generationally. Well, I mean, but there it is. I understand why you're saying it's useful because at some point you're looking for ways or things that you might have in common with somebody. And if you find out what their age is uh, and when they're born, that gives you a kind of a starting point of, okay, here's some things I know that we share besides the fact that we're all using Twitter and Instagram. What else do we have in common? When were you born? And then you kind of get a sense for for that. And I think it also, like, it's it's helpful for people who are younger to kind of get an idea of, like, is this person my age? Are they a little older than me? Are they, like, my parents' age? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that kind of gives somebody a framework as to how to navigate the, the interaction that they're going to have with somebody. When I don't think any of that stuff really matters at all. I mean, I re- for the longest time, and this is probably because I was living in Florida at the time, but when I first entered into the workforce, I was always the youngest person. Always the youngest person. It's not like in, you know, I imagine how it was at, at the same time in San Francisco when there were tons and tons of people in the fields that I were in who were young who were my age, who were 22, 23 years old, coming into the workforce with their first, second job out of school. And, you know, being in a place like that, in a city like that, which are, they they have a lot of young people who are professionals working in the fields like that I was in, like computers and web stuff. But where I lived, I was the only person who was that age. And frequently the, my coworkers were, I don't know, 10, 10 years older than me or more. Mm-hmm. And when you're 22, somebody who's 35, you can't, at least I couldn't, maybe there's smarter people out there than me, but I couldn't make an easy distinction between somebody who was 
in their mid late thirties and my parents' age. Like that seemed the same to me. Like if you weren't within a few years of my age, you were like kind of old and you probably didn't understand anything. And I clearly I was proved wrong pretty quickly, but you know, it, there weren't a lot of people who, I mean, I had friends of course, who were my age friends that lived near me in college and other things like that. But as far as like in my field, that was really it. I was like the one person who was my age. And that really sucked because everybody else in the room was 10 plus years older than me. And I never got any, you know, any kind of respect or um, consideration for the things that I thought, because clearly I didn't have enough experience, even though I might've had knowledge, I didn't have experience. Mm-hmm. And it took, well, apparently my phone thought I was talking to it. It took a long time before, you know, I just, before I was old enough where people would look at me and not think, oh, like here's a kid that he may know stuff, but he doesn't know anything. Mm. You know, I don't know if other people have run into that or if it was just me because of where I was, but it really, until I was like in my thirties and looked like I was in my thirties before I got any kind of acknowledgement or respect at all in those Mm -hmm. kinds of situations. But I think it gives, you know, being able to use that and say, Oh, well, you're a millennial, you're a Gen X, whatever. I think that helps people kind of frame that starting point of like, did you see the Snoopy snow cone machine commercial when you were a kid? Because if you're like, in this generation, then you grew up watching that. But like, if you grew up watching, you know, like the care bears cartoon or something that was for babies when I was, when it was on TV, that wasn't for me. I was well past that, but did you watch transformers? Did you watch GI Joe? You know? And like, you may be thinking, well, you might've been a little too old for some of those yet. We're kind of still in the same generation It's certainly they were in your periphery. If you didn't, wake up on Saturday morning and go to to watch, you know, Transformers. But like, there's a lot of people I think right now who certainly watch Transformers in the morning. And then there's a group where like, Oh no, I was a little too old for that, but I knew about it. And there are other people who are like, wait, Transformers, you mean that movie? No, you know, no, totally different. But I think it's that generational framework. You know, the people who are in their mid twenties now are are probably really enjoying Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And we're kind of on the edge of that now. Do we really need that in our lives? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think people in, well, in their 20s are enjoying yeah, Facebook or Twitter. Right. You're probably right. No, they're somewhere else. They're on, they're on Kick or on Bumble. Or I don't know where they are. They're, you know what? I Snapchat. think probably, probably the 21-year-olds 21, oh, 21 at least were on Snapchat. Yeah. I, they may have. They may be jumping ship now. I think probably 21-year-olds are on Craigslist looking at, <laughs> like, hookup ads. <laughs> yeah, that's People what just they're doing. Like, hey, you know, male looking for a uh, threesome. Here's a picture of me. I'm, you know, I'm 54. <laughs> and that's a picture where, you, you know, you can't, can't quite see his face, but big belly there. I don't know. I think in terms of my own life, I think of the year 1980 as being I've I've talked before about the sort of geography of a year. But in the geography of my life, 1980 is an enormous 
right turn. It's a right angle turn from the 70s to the 80s. And there isn't a similar turn anywhere else in my life, right? For moving from the 60s to the 70s, it's just kind of like in my imagination at least walking through the threshold of a of a barn and then this big right turn in 1980, uh, there's a little bit of like a, a couple of steps down in about 86, 87. And then there's a, there's kind of a jump off of a loading dock into 1990, uh, a long sort of walk on a cobblestone path till you get to about 2007 and then yeah you sort of make your way down the side of a waterfall on a trail that curves around again to the right everything's happening all of my geography of time it always is is clockwise it's always you're always just making right turns always a spiral to the right and then from 2007 to the present has been, yeah, kind of a walk through a grassy field. <laughs> but 1980, it's a, it's a hard right turn. And, um, and if you don't have memories from before 1980, or if you don't have a clear sense of yourself as a child participating in adult culture in the world of adults, uh, pre 1980, then it's, then I will never not think of you as young because those, those parts of my life that those foundational parts of like evil Knievel. Yes. And, um, like if you weren't following evil Knievel as he jumped the snake river, yeah, there's just, and that's a, that's a brief moment in time, but it's much more instructive to me because there were people my age who definitely watched Miami Vice and Dukes of Hazard. although I considered those shows to be beneath my dignity at the time. Um, but that was because I was a, you know, because I was a little brat, mm -hmm. right? Now, see, um, like, I was too young to, I, I, saw the evil Knievel snake river jump, but I was, you know, a few year, years old when I saw it, I must've been six, seven years old, but that didn't that happen in like 73, 74, 75, something like that. So I was too little to have seen it. Then we still loved evil Knievel growing up, but like I was too young to have seen that happen. I remember we watched it on a TV show when I was a kid, but that that seemed old by then. I probably didn't see that yeah. until 1979, you know? Yeah, you were born what year? 72. Yeah, so you would have been a little little Just a little too young, yeah. But yeah. you know, I was, what, six? I mean, that right. if you're going to have a guy dressed as a superhero... <laughs> um, uh, jumping a motorcycle over a canyon in not only a canyon, but a Northwest Canyon. Yeah. Uh, boy, I was really the target audience for that. And my mom was not very supportive of evil Knievel. She's, you know, my mom spent her whole life 
trying to distance herself from white trash culture as much as she could. That was not a thing she wanted any part of. And so Evil Knievel was part of that uh, chicken picking NASCAR America. Right, right, right. That she, as someone from northern Ohio, identified as a part of the culture of southern Ohio that Mm. she was pretty contemptuous of. But I'm a little kid, right? You couldn't keep evil Knievel away from me. It was all we were talking about. We were all jumping our little motorcycles over over canyons. I can't can't imagine how many skinned knees he's responsible for in the (laughs) history of the world. But that – and that is a kind of – is that an important thing? I mean, one of the, one of the reasons I, I, as I was searching for a reason for why I felt so much personal camaraderie with these admirals that definitely if I had met a bunch of admirals when I was 35, I would have, uh, I would have been in too much awe to interact with them effectively. Yeah. You know, I would have maybe made some jokes. I would have stood there and been like, um, ha ha ha. You know, I would have tried. And the only reason that, and, and, and I didn't look at, at the admirals initially and think, Oh, these are a bunch of people my own age or a little bit older. Mm-hmm. But, but I did, I did feel that immediate comfort with them and as i reflected on it it was like oh it's because we're the same age um because there were female admirals there were african-american admirals it wasn't like we all were just a bunch of uh white college bros like it it's (laughs) that group of admirals is pretty diverse but we're all between the ages of 48 and 58 and and we didn't stand around talking about Scooby-Doo either. We just knew – we just recognized one another as age peers. And so there was no – there never um, – there, wa- there wasn't any uh, hurdle to overcome. Right. And I think, I think it's one of the nice things about being 50, roughly 50, mm-hmm. is that you're – you're established. Nobody can take anything away from you at 50. You know, I mean, I, I still feel vulnerable, very vulnerable in the world. I feel like, um, there are still people I want to be friends with who don't want to be friends with me. And that's a feeling that maybe never leaves. Maybe in, in your whole life, when you're 85 years old, you still are sitting at the dining room table at your assisted living facility <laughs> and there's a table across the room where the like fashionable 85 year olds are sitting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely sat in, in the dining room of my dad's table at the assisted living facility and, and the people at his table were making catty remarks about people at a different table. So it's not, I don't think that ever completely goes away, but also I don't have I don't have that many questions about like what if I what if I just 
fade away or yeah you know I, I hate to keep referencing the fact that I lurk on 4chan but it is a it is a very interesting tableau and one of the one of the major features of it there is there are a lot of young people on it right I think that my sense is the average age is about 24 and there's just a, this constant repetition of the mantra of people who haven't found their place in the world and of course because they're young they're very dramatic and they're all threatening suicide all the time if every person on uh, reddit or 4chan who threatened suicide actually <laughs> killed themselves right uh, it would be 10% of the of the population of america but they threaten it you yeah, know they yeah. threaten it because they want somebody they, they want people to come in and say no you have so much to live for and of course on those boards about half the responses are do it mm. <laughs> kill, kill yourself that just seems terrible. Well, who knows what they're getting out of it? I mean, like once again, I'm not 24 and I, in when I was 24, I never would have gone on a message board and an anonymous message board and told people I was going to kill myself. But I see people all the time in their late forties who are talking on Facebook in ways that I would never in a billion trillion years do. But that, but the thing that it's very hard for me to sympathize with now but I absolutely remember it being a dominant feature of my young life was that feeling of like, how do I, I don't belong anywhere. I don't belong. I do not belong. Mm -hmm. I don't belong to the world. And I also don't belong to my own peers, my, my generation, my friends, my, the things that I'm supposed to know about and care about and be good at. I'm not. And it's a profound sense of failure to carry around with you all the time and a feeling of failure for something. It's not like you did something wrong. It's just, it's just existential failure. You're failing to thrive, I guess mm -hmm. is, is the best way to put it. And I, I do believe that's a condition of, of youth and in particular young adults where you've left an environment where presumably like at least you did okay in school or maybe you didn't do well in school. Maybe your feeling of failure predates even graduating from high school as it did in, in my case. Mm -hmm. Like I had a feeling of failure from the time I was eight years old that, that haunted me. Although my high school girlfriend didn't, she, she was uh, the valedictorian of our class. So she didn't have a sense of failure, but you get out there into the, into the world. And unless you're in, unless you stay in college and continue to succeed in college, if you just get out in the world, it's like, well, you got to get an apartment, you got to get a job like that feeling of alienation and failure. It can come on you pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And if you're not ready for it, it's, it's super hard to contextualize. And I guess uh, people now who are on the internet and looking at, and are, are comparing themselves against their peers who some of them are, are already multimillionaires from some, from playing video games. Right. Right. Because for me to compare myself against my peers, I wasn't comparing myself against peers that I didn't know who were multimillionaires. I mean, I guess Kurt Cobain, I didn't know. Uh, and, and he was more or less a peer. No, I was comparing myself against peers who just managed to get laid 
or managed <laughs> to have a relationship with somebody or had an apartment that had 600 square feet instead of 300 square feet. And just comparing myself to, to that tiny marginally better, uh, ability to thrive in the world. I was like, I'm a hopeless loser. Now comparing myself to, to a bunch of people on Instagram who are airbrushing the wrinkles out of their faces. I can't imagine what it would be like to, to be 24 now. It just seems, it just seems like so hard to not feel like you're a flop. We would like to thank Washington Square Watches. These are some really interesting new timepieces that are out here. They have a focus on individuality, creativity, and motivation. That's right. They have these luxury watch collection that you can go and check out. And what's really cool about them is you can personalize them. You get to pick and choose so many variations, not just in the style of the dial or the hands, but in the straps that come with them the metal that's used, you name it, you can customize this. They've got so many different options for you. You can go there and pick out something that really speaks to you, that really communicates what you're into. And you know what? Everybody likes a watch these days. And why not stand out a little bit? Make something that's yours. Make something that's your own. You have the option to even personalize your watch strap with your initials. It's free during the holiday season. Genuine leather straps are made in America. Slim design. They have what they call upgraded minimalist details. I think that's an excellent description of these watches. They've got a square-shaped case. They've got a round case. You need to go and see these things. And they they ship in a very lovely little gift box. I've got one right here. It has a vegan leather pouch inside of this lovely gift box with Japanese movements. So you know they're going to be accurate. You know they're going to keep good time. And so here's what I want you to do. For more information, you can check out all these beautiful watches at WashingtonSquareWatches.com and use the code ROADWORK for 30% off your entire order. Washington Square Watches, it's your time. Comparing yourself to other people, if you want to get all Buddhisty, they say any kind of comparison is, is meaningless. But we still exist in the world. I mean, we, we live in the world and we look around and we see other people and we hear about other people. But in, in the olden times, you know, it really came down to like the people that you interacted with on a regular basis. And most of those people were your friends or your colleagues or your family. And so, you know, if, if, your next door neighbor got a new car. You might say, oh, well, my next door neighbor got a new car. The other neighbor on the other side gets a new car. And you might say, well, I'm kind of driving a piece of crap. Maybe I should consider getting a new car. But the inundation that people have today on social networks and forget television, just the social network aspect, it's overwhelming. It would, I imagine it would make you feel like no, no accomplishment is good enough. Oh, you think you, you know, oh, you lost five pounds and you, you know, you're working out in the gym. Well, look at this guy. He lost 25 pounds in six weeks. He's got a six pack and look at that beautiful woman on his arm. Like no accomplishment that you can have will ever be able to match with what Instagram tells you you could have. 
And that must be so hard and so frustrating. Well, like you say, it's a big part of capitalism to create a false sense of need. Uh, and you do that best by, by comparison, make, make people feel like their car isn't enough and Mm -hmm. that they're, they don't have enough abs because what that will do is get you out and sell you stuff. And Facebook is selling you the idea that you need to be on Facebook and all these things are very addictive, but there is, but it's not, it's not inventing, uh, it's not inventing the world of feelings that we have. It's just exploiting it. And th- that world of feelings is, I, I assume, hardwired in us because we are hierarchical, we're, we're pack animals. And to be living in a, to be living in a small tribe where you're, you have effectively the wolf pack dynamics, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear like who the leader is, who the lead couples are, and then what your role is in the pack. And uh, as we have expanded into out out of small packs into large packs and out of large packs into towns and out of towns into cities, all of that has happened pretty fast in an evolutionary sense, right? I mean, when I was born, there were 150 million Americans. Is that right? I mean, just in my own lifetime, mm-hmm. um, let's see here. I want to make sure that I have. You were born 69? A 68. So the American population in 1968 was 200.7 million. So 200 million people in, uh, in the in the world when I was born and there are 350 million Americans now, more or less 325 million Americans. So the population has grown by 50% just in the space of my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, the population in 1900 was 76 million people. So, I mean, think about that, how uh, when we think about the United States and uh, think about it with a sense of continuity, 1900 isn't that long ago, but, but there were one quarter of the number of people on the continent a hundred years ago. And in 1780, I'm just now reading off the internet, but um, like around the time of the revolution, there were fewer than 4 million people in the United States. Wow. Wow. So, you know, that's like roughly, what, half the population of New York? <laughs> yeah. Or half the population of Manhattan? Yeah, what I was going to pop- say, <laughs> not... not- there's a lot more people in New York now. Um, oh, okay. So Manhattan only has a million and a half people, but New York. Is it New York State? No, no, no. New York State's got a lot more. New York City has has eight and a half million. So, yeah. so basically, yeah, uh, 
And so, but, but what I mean is that we were socially organized just 200 years ago, so much differently than we are now. And, and you want to think that we change a lot faster than we do, but human beings have never, ever, ever in history lived like we do in as much with as much information about one another and as proximate to one another as we are surround. I mean, every day I feel more and more, uh, crowded in upon, and that's not a, uh, that's not in my imagination. There are more people in Seattle than there've ever been. And I grew up in a place where you just didn't have as many people. And there are, there are, it's not like populations ebb and flow. They do, but on a line where the population is always growing. Mm. So Seattle sometimes is busy. Sometimes it's less busy, but there's never, the population has never gone down. Right. Probably never even plateaued. I would imagine. Well, in the, in the early seventies when Boeing suffered a downturn after the SST program collapsed, there actually was a period where fewer people lived in Seattle or at least the population plateaued, but not since, not since the early seventies has there been a decline anyway. So we're not organized. Uh, we're not mentally and emotionally built to live under these conditions and we're adaptable. We're extremely adaptable. But somewhere in us, there are these, there are these fundamental principles that look to the leader and, and spend a lot of time and energy figuring out where we fit. I mean, think about how much energy we spend individually and as a, as a, as a culture trying to figure out where we fit, how we fit in. And it isn't like fit into a, uh, to conformity, which was, which was the big issue when we were kids, this idea, and this was again, a baby boomer construct that there were conformists and then there were non-conformists and you didn't want to be a conformist. You wanted to be a non, and then people were making that decision. Like, am I a conformist or a non-conformist? I think I had more comfortable being a conformist and non-conformists were this tiny little 2% of the population that wore their hair funny. Uh, and we don't live in that world anymore. There isn't, you never hear like conformist or nonconformist because what happened was nonconformity became the standard, at least in, at least in a, a big part of the mainstream culture. Now it's expected that you practice a certain kind of visible nonconformity, but that's all part of a, that's all part of a tribal um, signaling that you're that you are one of the gang. But like, what what to do about that? What how to collect that information and feed it into a mechanism in you that is much much older than two hundred years old? Mm-hmm. That's like, am I? You know, if you're the leader, you are. People are constantly coming at you. Being the leader is never a comfortable position. People are trying to attack you all the time, nipping at your heels. There's always someone who who thinks they want that job. Um, and if you're in the middle of of uh, of a of a tribe somehow, like you're you're buffeted on all sides. There's 
there's hardly anywhere where you are where you can live without feeling social pressure. But my God, if your tribe is 350 million people, if you're judging yourself on a context where it's like, well, I'm, I'm not as successful as Seth Meyers. It's like, Oh fuck. Like there aren't that many people with nightly talk shows. You're talking about a, you're talking about a pool of people, 350 million strong. You can't be the best at everything. Uh, and so, you know, then you, then you're trying to confront like, well, what's my tribe? Well, for us, particularly on social media, like what is my tribe? The people that live around me, like my little gang of dudes here in Seattle, some of whom have platinum records, right? Right. <laughs> or is my tribe, uh, the people that I'm friends with online, some of whom have Oscars. Right. And I mean, I remember, I'm remembering a time when I lived in North Carolina, so this must have been, oh gosh, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, something like that. And I had, uh, I'd known a guy that I'd only met, um, you know, over the internet. And when I moved there, I said, oh, he lives here. Let's go have lunch. So we went to have lunch and I was talking to him and he said, uh, he made a comment to me that even I, as much of an internet nerd as I was and am, but was at the time, he said something to me that like, I was like, oh, and what he said was most of my friends and certainly most of my best friends are people that I know over the internet that I've never met in person. And that comment just kind of, it just kind of like shocked me. Even me, the guy who's like Mr. Internet at the time, I was like, well, on the one hand, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, what, what kind of fun is that? Like, how are you having fun with these people? How are you doing things with these people? You're not. You're just sort of talking to them. And, and back then, it was mainly email is how we mostly talked to people over the internet. I mean, we had ICQ and I think we had AIM. But, you know, and we had IRC, of course. Of course, IRC. But. In, re- in real culture. Inter- internet relay chat. Internet relay chat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very much like Slack today. Yeah, I don't want to hear about it, but go on. And we, um, you know, we would we would talk to each other over the internet in that way. But like my friends were my friends, like the people that you know, I had I had a number of friends that we would go out to dinner and go hang out and grab lunch together and do things on the weekends and like live live lives as best as we could. Um, and so this was like just such a weird thing. And now I think it's very very normal. And it has it went from being very weird to very normal and very usual. And it's not that he had met these people and then they had moved to separate places. He'd never met them. You know, he'd, he'd never met them, knew them online and had established a great a great friendship over the Internet with them. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I hope I'm not sounding critical of it. I was just shocked at the time that uh, not only that this was the case, but that he was uh, very happy with and perhaps even proud of this fact. And, uh, and you know, I think, again, today it seems, it seems kind of normal, but when you talk about, like, knowing people and comparing yourself to people and, and, and things like that, like, it's, it can be so frustrating because I know lots of people, and I mean lots, like a dozen people who – you know, moved to San Francisco at the same time that I 
graduated and could have moved there and didn't, who either by really great work or hard work or simply by being in the right place at the right time are now multi, multi, multi millionaires doing anything that they want to do. And they work on things if they feel like working on things and they do stuff that they want to do and they can work or not for the rest of their lives. And, you know, like comparing myself to them and saying, what if I had been in that situation just physically in that location, knowing what I knew at the time of, I guarantee you, I would have been in one or several startups and eventually, you know, like one of those would have made millions of dollars when they sold, or maybe they would have just gone out of business and I would have made nothing, but still like there was that greater possibility that if I'd been there, that probably would have happened. Like there's a good chance that it would have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like, what do you say about that? Like, you know, how do you compare yourself to, to these other people when it's impossible to do that? You know, there's lots of people our age who are homeless and there's lots of people our age who are super famous or super wealthy or just super happy. You know, like it's, it's a frustrating thing and it's better to just not do it. I think. Last night I spent probably an hour um, with a calculator multiplying the number 14,000 against some other numbers. Mm -hmm. 14,000 times 150, 14,000 times 220, uh, 14,000 times, you know, I just kept 14,000 times 15. Uh, and the reason I was doing that is because Bitcoin is now worth $14,000 for a Bitcoin. Right. And multiple times in the life of Bitcoin, I have sat down with myself and said, do I want to put money into this? Yeah. This feels like a thing that if I don't buy some Bitcoin, I'm going to feel like a dummy later. Mm -hmm. But these Bitcoins like right now aren't free. They're like $30 a piece. Mm -hmm. Should I go and spend, you know, like if I spend $300, um, I'm going to have 10 Bitcoin. That feels kind of dumb. Um, like that just feels like throwing $300 in the sewer. Uh, but then again, maybe I should, but, but the decision was always like, well, if I have 10 of something, like if I had 10 shares of Apple and mm -hmm. they became, and they were worth $400. Yeah. Well, they'd be worth $4,000 and the risk of spending $400 to make $4,000. It just, I always felt like, man, whatever, not quite worth it. But now, whoever thought a, a single Bitcoin would be worth $14,000? And there were times, certainly, in, uh, in my life that I was aware of Bitcoin and aware of it enough that I thought I should probably get some where I could have acquired without, like, without being completely irresponsible with my money, I could have acquired 50 or a hundred Bitcoin by hook or by crook. Mm -hmm. 
and a hundred Bitcoin now is worth a million four hundred thousand dollars, uh, which is another one of these things where you just you. If if I had a, sh- well, I do. I have a mental shoebox where I have all of those missed opportunities stored. Um, and for me, my missed opportunity was not that I moved to San Francisco in time to uh, be one of the first 100 employees of Facebook because that was never in the cards for me. But I certainly could have, uh, I certainly could have owned 100 Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's, that is like, you can't carry around that shoebox. For me, if that shoebox is under my bed, because I have other regrets in there too, all the relationships that I screwed up and all of the, you know, all of the other, I wish I hadn't jumped up off that outfield wall at RFK Stadium in 1989 because I would still be able to ski now. Um, a lot, a lot of, like, there's a lot of regrets in that shoebox, but to put in that type of thing where you just lay in bed at night with a calculator yeah, calculating all the money you don't have. Yeah, but you can't do that because look at, look at it like this. When I graduated college in 1994, okay, Apple stock price was a, a, like a dollar and 10 cents. <laughs> okay. Now, um, today, hold on. Today, uh, look for this. Apple's stock price right now is $169.85, but it's split several it times. It has right? split. It split June in uh, uh, June 2000, February 2005, and June 2014. Now it's split 2 to 1 in June 2000, 2 to 1 in February 2005, 7 to 1 in June 2014. No kidding. Okay, Seven so if one. if you had spent $1000 in 1994, that would have gotten you 900 shares. Now, I had, when I graduated college, I had $350 to my name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but by the end of 1994, I, I, I could have scraped together 1000 bucks. I could have gone to granddad and said, hey, let me borrow. Okay, so that would have mm-hmm. been 900 shares in 1994. Because you can tell I've done this math. Um, I'm looking at my notes. 1994, I would have had 900 shares. In June 2000, that would have become 1,800 shares. Right. In February of 2005, it would have been 3,600 shares. Oh, okay. And in uh, in June of 2014, it would have been uh, 25,200 shares. Today's value, $4,000,000. Two hundred and fifty-eight thousand eight hundred dollars. No kidding. For the thousand-dollar investment that I would have made, and I'll tell you something else. In nineteen ninety-four, I knew Apple was good. I didn't yeah. know they were going to do an iPod and an iPhone. Of course not. But I mean, I loved Apple. I've been using Apple since nineteen eighty-two. Right. So, like, I knew Apple was cool. I knew Apple was good, and I had a thousand dollars. Right. Um, I would have, if all I did was put that thousand dollars in and not touch it a thousand dollars, dude, I know I blew a thousand dollars on, 
I don't know, tires in my car and eating dinner and whatever. You know what I mean? Like, sure, I blew I that money. Dollars. I mean, not in 1994, but I had a thousand. I mean, I could have. My mom had a thousand dollars. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could have gone yeah. to my mom and my granddad and said, "Each y'all, you know, give me, give me three or four hundred bucks. I'm going to pull this together. I'm going to buy something. I know." It's so you're saying that off. would be worth twenty five million dollars? No, four million two hundred fifty eight thousand eight hundred. It would be twenty five thousand shares today. Just and the value of those shares would be at today's price of one hundred sixty nine bucks a share. Oh boy, that's see, and that's what I'm saying. So don't like you can't you can't go through that. You can't put yourself through what you could have done or should have done i mean well, the, yeah but you you just you're just saying that you have calculated this on a notepad right but this is what i'm saying this is why i know not to do it I see. because i have done it uh-huh. and uh and the same thing for netscape like i was netscape when netscape went public i knew <laughs> netscape was gonna do something amazing and i just sat there and watched it and i'm like why didn't i invest in that you know, so it's like the Bitcoin thing. You can do the same thing with Bitcoin, but at least like at the time, like I, I had an Apple computer in front of me at work. Like I knew, it was a thing I knew. It was a thing I could touch and use and was familiar with. And I'd used them for, you know, 10 years plus at that time, 15 years. I don't know. And whereas Bitcoin's Bitcoin seems very mysterious to people, even people who kind of understand what blockchain is like Bitcoin is like this thing. And people are like, what's Bitcoin? I don't know. You better put some money in it. Why? It's And a friend of mine just emailed me the other day. What a jerk he is. He says, my investment in Bitcoin of $100 is now worth $2,500. I'm like, I just delete the email. I don't even write him back. Don't talk yeah. to me anymore. Yeah. Eat shit guy. Yeah. Carl. Well, I don't know. You know, I definitely like definitely having money is, is threaded through all of this. Having money is threaded through having money or not having money is threaded through my contempt for the baby boomers. It's threaded through my understanding of, of generations and of history and of population where I fit, where my friends fit um, a lot of my relationships with my friends, uh, are con- a lot of the, the good relationships I have with people are, are kind of predicated on me ignoring the money that they have mm-hmm. and them ignoring the money I don't have. <laughs> and, and it does go both ways. Like I, I, I recently had conversations with a, or I had a conversation with a friend who said, you know, very indirectly, but said, you know, what I like about hanging out with you is that there's no weirdness. And what the implication of that was that the weirdness came from other people, the weirdness that they felt with other people, even their friends Mm -hmm. was a weirdness that was about the, the gulf of money that existed oh, between them. Right. They had it and the other one didn't or vice versa. Yeah. And the fact that they had it and their friends don't, none of the people that they like have as much money as them mm-hmm. causes problems for them um, because they don't want to just hang out with other people that have money. They still want to believe that they're one of the gang. Right. And they feel acutely that you know, when the restaurant bill comes, there's all of a sudden all this weirdness, even though everybody at the table could buy the dinner. It's not like we just ate gold bars. 
<laughs> but you know, it's a it's like a three hundred dollar meal, right? Nobody there is incapable of of spending three hundred dollars for their friends, but because one of the people is like significantly wealthier, it's a weird moment, and that person feels it too, and they feel so much more comfortable in an environment that where their friends are either unconscious of it or make a point to be unconscious of it. And then that's how I am. I make a point of it. I'm definitely not unconscious of it, but you can't, you can't go into every situation feeling that imbalance because it's just money and money is fake. As we know, we've established that money is fake, but there is an awful lot of the, of the life that I lead that is, that's sort of based on a shared understanding of uh, that that people in my world have different resources and and the generous ones of us are the ones that make it not a big deal um you know if you do have money the nicest thing you can do is make it not a big deal for other people and that involves sometimes i mean i uh, so i have rich friends that do it one of about three different ways there's the there's the rich friend who says I'm just a regular person. And so we're going to split this meal Mm -hmm. or I bought you, uh, the tickets to the baseball game and they were $22 each. And then, you know, you stand there and pull the $22 out and hand it over to them because that's their version of, I'm just a regular person. I'm a normal guy. Um, like the Nordstrom family here in Seattle, like they, uh, they're active members of just like, the town and you run into them all the time and, and that's their version of it. Like we're just normal people. So, um, anyway, here's the check, like let's split it up. <laughs> and, and that's very different, uh, considering the, of course that they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but that that's very different from the other version of it, which is, look, we all know that I'm the rich person here. And so before the bill even hits the table, I'm going to have talked to somebody at the restaurant and it's covered. Don't worry about it. Right. And that's not weird either. It's just an, it's just a reflection of the fact that we all know that that's the case. So why pretend, why pretend that I'm that, you know, if we're, if we're going to eat out together, let me get it, please. Um, which is a different, a different version of it. Uh, and then sort of the third version of it is the absent-minded professor version of like, oops, I'm, you know, like, I don't even know what money is. Uh, oh, did we, were we supposed to pay <laughs> type of, uh, type of thing, which I think works for a lot of people, I yeah. mean, uh, particularly in the creative world. But there's that other currency too in this world that we share, which is the world of, um, famous people can get things done. And I think that's the, that's the pressure that they feel even more than the money pressure that their friends are standing around and like kind of leaning into leaning into the spotlight a little bit. Like, can I get a little bit of that reflected spotlight? Mm -hmm. Do you think that you could help me put my show on the air? Do you think you could help me? Could you, could we put your name on my dust jacket? You know, um, and that is a that's a pressure that makes it hard for people of different statuses to be 
to be friends in show business. Um, because it's so hard to not to go somewhere with somebody like for instance, uh, and, and this isn't just a plug. Um, but today is the debut of my new podcast with Ken Jennings, the omnibus. Yep. I saw the in, video preview, which was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and it's very exciting. And in a lot of the, and so we did an interview yesterday or the day before with Newsweek, which was a very fun interview. And, you know, Ken and I are equal partners in the show and we do, uh, and we enjoy that a lot. But the Newsweek headline was, you're going to love this new Ken Jennings podcast. Now, I haven't read the article and I'm sure it, it mentions me immediately in the first sentence. Let's hope it does. But I cannot be upset or sad or even even briefly uh, twinged by that headline or by the fact that Seth Meyers says, yeah, I'd love to have Ken on the program to talk about his new podcast. Because it's just the it, it, it's just the the fame imbalance between the two of us right. is real. And the fact that Ken and I are doing this show together as friends and peers um, doesn't change the fact that from a publicist's perspective or a booking agent's perspective, um, one of the names is the one that, you know, that they're going to zero in on because that's the one that's going to get the eyeballs. And that, you know, that's present in my relationships with probably half a dozen of my friends where when we walk into a place uh, in the, in the style of a 1930s musical, the spotlight suddenly swings around, but it's a, it's a narrow light. And if I spend any time kind of trying to sneak into that light, like edge my shoulder in and be like, hi, me too. <laughs> uh, it's just weird. It's awful. It's awful for my friend. It's awful for me. And so it's like in my recognition of my place in the wolf pack, um, in most of my, uh, with most of my good friends, I'm not the lead wolf. And in my own imagination and my own emotional life, I'm definitely no, I'm definitely not a member of any pack where I'm not the leader. And that, and that creates, I think, all of the emotional tension that informs almost everything I do. 